0: Hello, and welcome to The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today is the unsettling feeling you get when what you believe comes into direct conflict with what you are experiencing. Not because I'm currently feeling it myself, but because it's one of the key concepts that we need to understand today's episode. And in a way, it's one of the key concepts that we need to understand the first quarter of 2021, which is when this episode is being recorded. I'll explain what I mean. A few episodes ago, we looked at the Millerite movement of the 19th century. Following the apocalyptic prophecies of preacher William Miller, tens of thousands of Americans spent much of 1843 and 1844 waiting for the world to end. Many of the Millerites had given away their possessions and properties in anticipation of the world being burned away. So certain were they of the biblical calculations of William Miller. In particular, Uh, The belief spread throughout the group that October 22nd, 1844 would be doomsday. And when October 23rd rolled around and the earth remained stubbornly undestroyed, the Millerites were faced with a terrible tension caused by the distance between their firmly held beliefs of the end of times and the unavoidable reality of a world that continued to exist. That date became known as the The Great 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 Disappointment. Disappointment. And certainly, disappointment is one way to describe the feelings the Millerites would have been experiencing, as they had to deal with an uncertain future filled with the mocking from the press and their neighbors, as well as the the very real consequences of giving away their valuables and ignoring the year's crops. But I'm going to say that the word disappointment doesn't quite capture the experience of having your deepest held beliefs shattered. And that brings us to today's episode. Because today we're going to be discussing a strange little event, or to be more accurate, a strange little non-event. The date of December 21st 1954 isn't remembered by history with a catchy name like October 23rd 1844 is, but it does share something in common with that earlier date. Just like the, the Great, great disappointment, disappointment of 1844, December 21st 1954 is notable for being a day on which the world refused to end, although by water this time rather than by fire. But rather than tens of thousands of people, there were only a handful of people in 1954 who were left in the awkward position of having their sincere convictions exposed as being completely incorrect. But there is still a lot to be learned from this little Cold War era doomsday group. Because when the sun rose on December 22nd on an undrowned planet, hidden amongst the disappointed true believers were five undercover social psychologists who had infiltrated the doomsday group in order to secretly study them and to learn what happens to people when prophecy fails. This is only a test. This is only a test. This is only a test. The leader of this group of undercover academics was a professor named Leon Festinger. And he had a hypothesis he wanted to test involving the concepts of dissonance and consonance. Uh, Here's what those terms mean. All of us have ideas and knowledge and behaviors and choices and beliefs and so on. Basically, these all help form who we are as individuals. When all of these are in agreement with each other, we say that they are in consonance. For example, my belief that the earth is not flat is in consonance with my knowledge that there are different time zones that exist in different parts of the world. My belief that dogs, cats, parrots, octopus, and pigs are intelligent and sensitive creatures is in consonance with my choice not to eat any of those creatures. My belief that it's wrong to murder is in consonance with my behavior of consistently choosing not to murder people. Consonance is very comfortable and stable, since it allows us to be consistent and not contradictory with ourselves. However, sometimes we can find that we experience dissonance, for example, when I'm standing in the snack food aisle of my grocery store, I experience a contradiction. I know that eating potato chips isn't good for me, and I know that I won't in the long run be happier if I eat an entire bag of potato chips. However, I'm also aware that I want potato chips. These two ideas can't coexist comfortably, and so they cause dissonance. Of course, I could always use rationalization to try to get my thoughts back in consonance. I could tell myself, for example, that if I buy the bag of potato chips, then I will also go for a run every day for a week. It doesn't really matter if the calories from the chips would be greater than the calories burned during the runs. It doesn't even really matter if I follow through on running every day after buying the chips. The important thing is that I'm able to, at least at that moment, reduce the discomfort caused by having conflicting ideas in my head. But this example of dissonance is easily dealt with. What about when the views that are in conflict with each other form a key part of your identity? Festinger had been looking at historical events like the Great Great Disappointment Disappointment and other similar examples of when a group of people truly believed in a specific prophecy that did not come true. You might think that a person would simply give up on a belief that had been proven to be false, but the historical account suggested that a frequent response to this situation was a kind of doubling down, in which the believers held on to their beliefs even more fiercely after they had been disproven. Festinger and his colleagues argued that there were five conditions that had to be met that would make this counterintuitive response of doubling down on a failed prediction more likely. Number one, the belief had to be held with deep conviction and have an impact on the actions and choices of the believer. If someone was just casually interested in a belief, it would be much easier for them to just abandon it. Two, The believer must have taken some actions based on their belief that could not be undone. For example, the Millerites would had given away their property and possessions while waiting for doomsday. The greater the consequences of these actions, the less the chance that the person would abandon the belief. Number three. The predictions of the belief had to be specific enough that they could be disproven without a doubt. So none of this vague,
1: There will be wars and rumors of wars and disease and famine
0: business. It has to be more like, This specific
1: thing will happen on this specific day.
0: Number four, the evidence disproving the belief has to occur and be clear and unambiguous. Number five, the individual believer has to have social support from people who also have a vested interest in maintaining the belief. An isolated believer might not be able to stand up to overwhelming evidence against their belief, Well, a group of believers would be able to support each other and provide an echo chamber in which they could protect themselves from inconvenient facts and events that contradicted the beliefs they were trying to hold on to. So this was the hypothesis that Festinger and his colleagues came up with. And, I mean, the the historical records of previous failed prophecies appeared to support this hypothesis, but Festinger wanted to test out his idea in the field with a modern group of believers. Fortunately for him and his colleagues, an opportunity to do that was starting to develop in the town of Oak Park, Illinois. Because in the town of Oak Park, a 54-year-old housewife named Dorothy Martin was starting to receive messages from another dimension. She had long had an interest in the supernatural and the cosmic, and she had read the writings of a number of influential occult figures, including a Godfrey Ray King, the Reverend John Newbro, and L. Ron Hubbard. Godfrey Ray King was the founder of the I Am movement, who argued that divine ascended masters communicated to humans through trained earthly messengers. Nubro had produced an entire new Bible in 1882, which he claimed that he had channeled rather than authored through the process of automatic writing. Uh, Basically, automatic writing is when a person allegedly puts themselves in a kind of trance and allows another being from another dimension to write through their earthly hand. In Nubrow's new Bible, everything that happens in the world is a struggle between the faithists who are anti-war, anti-drunkenness, and pro-peace, and the Uzians who are destructive and evil. And, of course, L. Ron Hubbard was the founder of Scientology, and Dorothy Martin was a practicing Scientologist. In late 1953, Martin claimed that she had been seized with a strange sort of tingling and numbness in her writing arm. And when she put pen to paper, her hand started automatically writing messages, As it turned out, she interpreted this writing as coming from her dead father, who was channeling her arm in order to give her mother instructions on how to plant flowers in their garden. After a few more experiments with automatic writing, she felt that she had contacted another entity. And this one was called Sananda, who Martin said was an enlightened being from the planet Clarion, who had previously visited the earth in the form of Jesus Christ. So now we're getting into some pretty heavy hitters. And according to the words that Dorothy Martin's hand was writing down, Sananda had an important message for humanity. And here's the gist of it. There was an entire universe filled with inhabited planets, and many of those beings of those planets were of superior intelligence and wisdom. That superior intelligence had allowed them to create amazing technologies that we could barely even comprehend. Now, these beings might sort of look like humans, but they exist at a higher vibratory frequency and can manipulate the physical world through thought alone, rather than physical effort. According to Martin, the League of Advanced Aliens had become very worried at the recent events on Earth, particularly regarding the advancements that humans had made in the technology of warfare. Atomic bombs, supersonic fighter planes, that kind of thing. Similar to the struggle that Martin had read about in Nubro's Bible, Sananda explained through Martin's hand that there had been a planet named Kar, and on that planet there had been two warring groups. The scientists were on one side and they were led by Lucifer and on the other side were the people of the light who followed God. The evil scientists had invented something called alsatopes, which were basically atomic bombs, and they had destroyed the planet Carr with their clever foolishness. Then the people of the light fled to the planet Clarion while the evil scientists populated the earth, although their memories of the planet Carr were erased in that process. There was also some discussion by Sananda of the lost continents of Mu and Atlantis and references to another atomic war that had also destroyed those two continents. Now at this point you might be wondering uh, if whether what was actually happening wasn't Dorothy Martin channeling Sananda but Dorothy Martin channeling her own fear of nuclear annihilation which in 1954 was a real vibe. And certainly, psychologists have argued that automatic writing is simply a way for someone to tap into their own unconscious, rather than a way to channel another entity from another dimension. But while that idea is an interesting avenue to go down, and of course the sort of avenue that ordinarily we would go down, for our purposes in this episode, it doesn't matter what was behind Martin's writings. Instead, what matters to us today is what the predictions were, whether they came true, and how the believers responded because there was a prophecy that Sananda had for Martin. And the prophecy was this. The evil humans who were behind the warfare and conflict on Earth were about to receive a terrible justice. As either Martin or Sananda through Martin wrote on August 2nd, 1954,
1: The earthling will awaken to the great casting of the lake seething, and the great destruction of the tall buildings of the local city the cast at the lake bed is sinking to the degree that it will be as a great scoop of wind from the bottom of the lake throughout the countryside. You shall tell the world that this is to be, for such it is given. To you the date only is secret, for the panic of men knows no bounds.
0: On August 25th, the scope of the upcoming disaster broadened, as Martin wrote,
1: This is not limited to the local area, for the cast of the country of the USA is that Is to break in twain. In the area of the Mississippi, in the region of the Canada, Great Lakes, and the Mississippi, to the Gulf of Mexico, into the Central America will be changed.
0: On the 27th, the message continued and stated that Egypt, France, England, and Russia would all drown as the continent of Mu rose from the Atlantic Ocean. But Martin wasn't afraid of the imminent apocalypse, because Sananda also promised that Martin and a small group of true believers would be rescued from the planet Earth in a flying saucer right before the flood. And by the time Sananda's predictions got specific and apocalyptic, Dorothy Martin was not alone. She had met two UFO enthusiasts, a Dr. Charles Laffitt, who worked at the Michigan State College Hospital, and his wife Lillian. The Laffeds believed in Sananda's prophecies, and Dr. Laffed began spreading the good news to the students at his college and to a church group he led. They also brought their teenage daughter into the group, but she wasn't quite as strongly convinced as her parents were. And it was Dr. Laffed who wrote the press release on September 17th that warned about the upcoming flood and gave the date, December 21st, which at the time was only a few months away. A few local papers gave the story a little article, and between the newspaper stories and the Lawfords proselytizing, Martin's group grew to a few dozen people. Some of them were fellow Scientologists, some were curious students, some were skeptical spouses brought along by their believing partners, and five members of Martin's little group were undercover psychologists, including Dr. Festinger himself, who infiltrated the group by pretending to be believers even going as far as to make up stories about their own experiences with the supernatural or with UFOs. And it's because of those five infiltrators that we have such a good record of the events in the Martin House over the next few months as the group prepared for the end times. The undercover observers noted that, while plenty of people showed curiosity. And Martin's House was now always abuzz with organized meetings and unscheduled drop-ins. There was only a small amount of people that consistently stuck around. And some of the variables that would make somebody more likely to stick around confirmed Festinger's hypothesis. True believers were more likely to take actions that couldn't be undone for the sake of their beliefs. And in turn, by taking those actions, those believers had more invested in the beliefs. It's kind of a feedback loop that would lead people deeper and deeper into their convictions. This can be seen in some of the conversations the Undercover Observers had with some of the more invested group members. The Lafid's teenage daughter, for example, wasn't particularly convinced by Martin's prophecies. But because her parents were so invested, her fate was also tied up in the prophecy. She mentioned to one of the Undercover Observers that if the prophecy didn't come true, her father would be a laughingstock and possibly lose his job. She would then have to drop out of school and find work somewhere. Another one of the believers, who was referred to in the study as Kitty, said, I have to believe the flood is coming on the 21st because I've spent nearly all of my money. I quit my job, I quit school, and my apartment cost me $100 a month. I have to believe. The beliefs of the group didn't go unquestioned or unchallenged either. Lots of the looky-loos who stopped by to talk would get into debates with the believers about their predictions. There was some strife within the group as well. One of the other Scientologists, a woman uh, referred to in the report as Bertha, started competing with Dorothy Martin's written channeling of Sananda with a spoken channeling of God himself. At some points during the meeting, it appeared that Bertha's theatrical style was taking attention away from Martin's original message. But overall, the core of the group held together. This is, in a large part, according to Fessinger, because they created a community in which each member was able to support the beliefs of the others, if somebody started feeling as though their new apocalyptic flying saucer beliefs were creating dissonance with their previous knowledge or their experience, then there was always someone else around to help guide them back to consonance. As the deadline grew closer, the group became more and more invested in the idea. The front page of the December 16th edition of the Chicago Daily Tribune gives some evidence of how invested, as there is a headline that reads, He quits job to wait end of world December 21st referring to Dr. Laffitt. Upon closer reading of the article, however, it becomes clear that he didn't so much quit his job at the college as he was fired for his beliefs. The president of the college, Dr. Hanna, is quoted as saying, We told Dr. Laffitt that his religious beliefs were his own business, but we didn't like some of the students being upset. As evidence for upset students, Dr. Hanna provides the example of a student who had purchased a new Cadillac for himself, figuring that with the world ending, he wouldn't have to keep paying his tuition. Losing his job upped the stakes for Dr. Laffitt, and he responded by doubling down on his beliefs. When asked by a reporter how he felt about losing his job over his doomsday prediction, Laffitt said, The Supreme Court is going to clean house by sinking all of the land masses as we know them now and raising the land masses now under the sea. There will be a washing of the world with water. Some will be saved by being taken off the earth in spacecraft. And the price wasn't just economic, but social. There were plenty of prank phone calls and people showing up at the door of Dorothy Martin's home claiming to be spacemen, only to mock her beliefs when she let them in. As the doomsday grew closer, the mocking newspaper stories became more frequent, but the mockery and scorn from the outside world just provided the group with a kind of external threat which just isolated and united the group even more, providing a kind of forge in which to hammer their beliefs into harder steel. And that steal would need to be very hard indeed, because in the last days leading up to the Great Flood of December 21st, the group suffered from three failed predictions in a row. The first one happened the morning of December 17th. Dorothy Martin received a phone call from somebody claiming to be from outer space. He said his name was Captain Video. The space captain told Martin that a flying saucer would pick her and her group up at 4 o'clock that afternoon. This caused a frenzy and activity in the house, as a previous automatic writing message had informed the group that no metal of any kind was to be allowed on the spacecraft, so the believers spent the early afternoon removing all of their zippers, clasps, buttons, bobby pins, and belt buckles. And when four o'clock arrived, the group was standing in the kitchen with their coats, ready to be picked up. By 5.30, they were back in the living room again, with their coats hung back up on the coat racks, and their minds deep in a state of dissonance they spent the afternoon trying to reconcile the event that had just not occurred. Or if you prefer, the non-event that just had occurred. Some discussion was made of whether the presence of some new joiners to the group had scared the aliens off. But the uh, explanation that eventually returned the group's minds to consonants was that the whole thing had just been a drill. A kind of test to make sure that they would be prepared when the real rescue happened. This explanation was satisfying to the members of the group who had been around the longest and had sacrificed the most, but it's important to note that after that non-event of the afternoon of the 17th, their newest member of the group left and never returned. The invested members were able to rationalize their minds back into a state of consonance despite the failed prophecy, but the new member who wasn't as invested was unable to deal with the dissonance and responded by abandoning the belief. While Spacemen didn't show up that day, plenty of other new people did stop by that evening, mostly local teenagers and college students, and Dorothy Martin spent the evening happily explaining her beliefs to those newcomers. The curious visitors had all left by 11.30 that night, and then at midnight Martin received another message from the Spacemen. A saucer was on its way right then. One of the undercover observers had been out for a walk, and when she returned to the house, she was told about the good news, after which one of the believers started trying to rip the heels off of her shoes because they had metal nails in them. The undercover observer, rather than lose her shoes, offered to put on slippers. She also took off her bra, which had a metal clasp, and she reported afterwards that she was extremely worried somebody might notice that she had metal fillings. The group, without any metal on, all stood out beside the house in the December chill until two o'clock in the morning. At which point Martin went into the garage and received a message from the spacemen that everyone could go back inside and that when the time was right, a man would be sent to collect them. The next day, December 18th, more curious visitors showed up and were received warmly by the group who were still happy to share their beliefs with them, although the group at this point considered the press to be something of an enemy. That evening, after most of the visitors had left, Dorothy Martin received another message assuring her and the rest of the group that everything that had happened was part of a plan and they just needed to continue trusting the plan. Later that night, a group of five young men showed up at the house claiming to be from the planet Clarion. Martin took them aside and had a long conversation with them and after the men left, she told the rest of the group that the men had indeed been from Clarion and that they had been testing her by challenging all of her beliefs. Martin was happy to say that she had passed that test. Most of the rest of the group agreed with this assessment and agreed that the men definitely looked like they were from the Planet Clarion. But one member, referred to in the report as Kurt, stated that they just looked like normal people to him and that they were probably just college kids playing a prank. Notably, the rest of the group ignored Kurt when he said this, and he quickly stopped his objections. Not much happened on Sunday the 19th other than some patient waiting. Dorothy Martin spent some time that day stressing the importance of the group staying together as a unit. Some of the members who hadn't been as invested had drifted away by this point. On the morning of the 20th, one day before doomsday, Martin received another message stating that the Flying Saucer Rescue was on its way. The rest of the day passed in a kind of quiet calm, and by the evening there were 15 members, including two undercover observers waiting to be picked up. The exact hour had been divulged by the spacemen and it was to be midnight when the group left the Earth for the planet Clarion. At 45 minutes to midnight, Martin received a message telling everyone to get their coats ready. At 25 minutes to midnight, one of the undercover observers confessed that he still had the metal zipper in his trousers, and Dr. Laff had pulled him into a nearby washroom and frantically cut the zipper out with a razor blade and wire cutters, and then sewed the fly shut with a needle and thread. The last 10 minutes before midnight were spent in almost complete silence, except when Dorothy Martin called out, And not a plan has gone astray. And then the clock struck midnight and chimed 12 times. Nobody said anything. Five minutes later, Martin received a message saying that the rescue mission was running a little behind and there would be a slight delay. A few reporters called the house, but the group wasn't interested in talking to them. Two hours later, Martin received another astral message. A miracle was about to take place. Her husband, Mr. Martin, would die and be resurrected that very night. Now, at this point, if you're wondering, wait, Mr. Martin, has he been mentioned at all? The answer is no. That's because Mr. Martin, although he was extremely supportive of and patient with his wife's beliefs, didn't share them at all. Even the night of the 20th, when flying saucer rescue was at hand and doomsday was about to happen, he had just gone to bed early. So, hearing of this imminent miracle, Dr. Laffitt and one of the undercover observers ran to Mr. Martin's room, but he was still alive and happily snoring away. They went back in several times that night, but never found him anything other than alive and sleeping. Finally, Dorothy Martin received a message stating that, in fact, Mr. Martin had died earlier in the evening, and by the time they went to check on him the first time, he had already come back to life, then, she was told that the death and rebirth of Mr. Martin was actually more of a spiritual, metaphorical resurrection. Finally, at 2.30 in the morning, Sananda sent Dorothy an astro message that everyone should probably just have some coffee. During this break, Dr. Laffitt expressed his confidence that everything was still going according to the spaceman's plans. One of the undercover observers, who was pretty exhausted by this point, went outside to get some fresh air. Dr. Laffitt ran after him and gave the following short speech, which the Observer wrote down almost immediately after hearing it. I've had to go a long way. I've given up just about everything. I've cut every tie. I've burned every bridge. I've turned my back on the world. I can't afford to doubt. I have to believe. And there isn't any other truth. I can't afford to doubt. I won't doubt, even if we have to make an announcement to the press tomorrow and admit we were wrong. You're having a period of doubt right now, but hang on, boy, hang on. This is a tough time, but we know the boys upstairs are taking care of us. Finally, at 4.45 in the morning, Dorothy Martin received an inspiring message from Sananda. Because of the love and light demonstrated by their little group, Doomsday had been called off, and the world had been spared destruction. At this point, Kurt, the one who was starting to have doubts earlier, grabbed his hat and coat and left. Never came back. But the rest of the group celebrated, and that morning they notified the press of the good news. Dr. Festinger points out that this was a real change in attitude for the group. Before the failed prediction, the group had an attitude towards the press that was mixed at best, and sort of borderline hostile. But after the failed prediction, they sought out the press, which is the opposite of what common sense might have predicted they would do. On the 22nd, Dr. Laffitt drove to Chicago. His sister had started court proceedings to declare him and his wife legally insane and to have their two youngest children taken from them. So he drove home to collect those children and bring them to Dorothy Martin's house. While he was away, Martin received another message. This time she was asked to turn on a tape recorder and go out onto the porch and a boys' glee club from another planet would sing them a song directly onto the tape. The group sat silently around the running tape recorder for almost an hour. Then a few reporters came to the door and Martin went out to talk to them. While she was being interviewed, the rest of the group played the tape back. But rather than hearing the voices of space children, they heard nothing but their own silence. On the 23rd, two days after the prophesied doomsday... Dorothy Martin received yet another message. This one told her that the group should get together in front of the house on Christmas Eve at 6 o'clock p.m. to sing Christmas carols, and a group of spacemen in a flying saucer would land to meet them. Martin was also told to notify the press and invite the public, which was a marked difference from the relative secrecy of the group's activities before the failed prophecy. The next day, on Christmas Eve, about 200 press and members of the public had gathered in front of the Martin's house, and the group sang Christmas carols for about 20 minutes, before going back inside. In an interview with a reporter afterwards, Dr. Laffitt said that there was, in fact, a spaceman in the crowd that day, wearing a helmet and a white gown. But nobody noticed him in the confusion. On Christmas Day, a new undercover observer was sent to the house by Dr. Festinger. This new observer was greeted with great enthusiasm by Dorothy Martin and Dr. Laffitt, who questioned him for several hours about whether he was, in fact, a spaceman. When the undercover observer said that he wasn't, Martin just smiled a knowing smile at him that seemed to say, I know you're really from Clarion, but you're just being coy. This new undercover observer stuck around for a little while, during which the group insisted on the idea that he was actually an undercover spaceman. But after Christmas, things started winding down. The police contacted Dorothy Martin's husband and informed him that unless the meetings and gatherings at the Martin house stopped, Dorothy would be arrested and possibly committed to a mental hospital. Dr. Laffitt was examined by two court-appointed psychiatrists and was judged to be entirely normal. He just happened to have some unusual ideas. Despite the complete and public failure of the group's prophecy, the people in the group who were the most invested held on to their beliefs in Martin's messages and flying saucers in general. The Laffids sold their home and started traveling around the country hoping to teach others about the planet Clarion and the teachings of Sananda. So what can we make of all of this? As a psychological study, the project was extremely flawed. It's well known in physics that it's impossible to observe something without changing it. And that is even more true in the social sciences. The fact that five extra people showed up appearing to be true believers to Martin's small group probably caused the group to hold to their beliefs with more conviction than they would have otherwise. I mean, the sixth observer who was sent to the house was mistaken for a spaceman. Having these observers in this situation change the outcome of that situation in addition of course we should be hesitant to make sweeping generalizations about humanity from a small snapshot of a little group of people and even within that small group there were a number of different reactions to the situations some people showed up curious and left skeptical some people started off skeptical and became more committed and dorothy martin's husband basically just pieced out from the whole endeavor but as flawed as the study was we can still learn from it And the main takeaway was probably summed up best by Festinger and the other authors of the study when they said, Man's resourcefulness goes beyond simply protecting a belief. Suppose an individual believes something with his whole heart. Suppose further that he has a commitment to this belief, that he has taken irrevocable actions because of it. Finally, suppose that he has been presented with evidence, unequivocal and undeniable evidence, that his belief is wrong. What will happen? the individual will frequently emerge not only unshaken, but even more convinced of the truth of his beliefs than ever before. Indeed, he may even show a new fervor about convincing and converting other people to this view.